Good afternoon. It's Friday the 10th of February 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, we've got Patrick Henningsen. Welcome back, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Great to be with you. And we got Vanessa Bailey joining us from Damascus. Um, so, well, we're going to get uh, straight on with the, well, I don't even know how to describe it. The, the state visit. The state visit, yes, on Wednesday. Uh, so let's just have a look at uh, the reception that Vladimir Zelensky got in Westminster Hall on Wednesday. Thank you so much. <laughs> I couldn't, uh, I couldn't inflict any more than that at this point. But uh, the, you know, uh, the the whole Parliament, uh, Lords and Commons assembled, uh, standing ovation for the man. Um, but it got worse, Patrick. It got worse during the course of the speech. Uh, there was a presentation made. Let's have a look at this. Because they are so few. They are so precious that we, the servants of our kings, do everything possible and impossible to make the world provide us with modern planes to empower and protect pilots who will be protecting us. And I'm proud of our Air Force. And I brought a present from them to you, Great Britain, Yes, please, open please. Yes. Yes. To the speaker. Yes, speaker. Hello. And it's it's I I, I will explain. Is the helmet of a real Ukrainian pilot. He is one of our most successful aces, and he's one of our kings. So a white helmet, and this is going to be the theme of today: white helmets. But anyway, uh, it's interesting mid nineteen seventies uh, uh, airline, uh, sorry, fighter pilot model there. Uh, so I mean, it doesn't look like it's a real or an up-to-date version. So the what, Ukrainian Air Force lost between 70, 50, and 70 fighters, been shot down already. Right. They don't have much of an Air Force left, as far as we can tell from the numbers. So what what's going on well, here? Well, you give, give a hint before the program, Patrick, because, of course, the white helmet uh, on the head of a fighter pilot uh, reminds us of the ghost of Kiev. But unfortunately, the ghost of Kiev wasn't real. This is what Zelensky was presenting to uh, Speaker Hoyle, was this uh, from this so-called ace, Ukrainian ace that uh, maneuvered around Kiev in the early days of the of the conflict and shot down all these uh, Russian uh, planes. And this was the ghost of Kiev. So that's effectively it's the, the ghost of Kiev gag. This has been debunked. Well, long time on ago. screen, we've got the Washington Post here. This is what admirers call the Ukrainian fighter pilot who was said to be to have been shot down sorry, who is said to have shot down 40 enemy planes. Over the weekend, Ukrainian officials admitted the ghost, in fact, 
never existed. So it was a fake story. Fake story. So this was propaganda to tr kind of get people behind the Ukrainian war effort um, early on. So this is one of many fake stories like Snake Island that goes to Kiev. So Zelensky actually, it looks like he pulled this gag on the Speaker of the House of Commons with, completely with a prop signed by the ghost of Kiev pilot and everything. That's what it appears like. I mean, we don't have exact confirmation because we're dealing in uh, smoke and mirrors here, Mike, propaganda, but that's exactly what it looks like. Right, so Lindsay Hoyle then uh, clearly very touched and very uh, pleased to receive this gift. Uh, he then appeared later on uh, with Julia Hartley Brewer. Let's have a listen to this little conversation. I'm always very worried when even though I think that we should provide those jets, even though I believe we should have been giving more help and we should give more help and, and that the risk of not giving help is greater. I'm always very worried when we have unanimity in Parliament. We saw that over the Iraq war. Because I remember Parliament is all united and saying, and Keir Starmer and Prince Snack saying we need to speak with one voice. We don't have that debate. Do you not worry about that as the Speaker of the Commons? Well, I would say we did have that debate. There is a difference here. This is Europe. This is on our doorstep. This is where the British people have opened the doors. They have welcomed and supported the plight of Ukraine. This is about the invasion of a sovereign territory. This is about Europe. Who is next? Who? This is a challenge to the NATO borders. But of course, as you well know, Julie, as Speaker of the House, I hold my neutrality. Yep. My neutrality is there to ensure which we did. We have had many debates on Ukraine, and that is the key to it. And may we continue to do that. So I'm not clear how you can have a debate uh, when everybody is in agreement. <laughs> but, but as well as that, he is dropping, name dropping there, the, the borders of NATO. The NATO is now again, even by the Speaker of the House of Commons, being presented as some kind of, uh, you know, uber national or uh, super, super national organization. Uh, which has some kind of statehood, which is really quite uh, quite incredible. But, but he also, the, he constantly invokes Europe, and you see a lot of British politicians doing this. This is striking in the heart of European democracy in Ukraine. Look, Ukraine was never regarded as part of Europe. This is uh, borderlands, hinterlands of Europe, far, yes. the Far East. Okay, and Britain doesn't even regard itself as part of Europe uh, after Brexit. But they constantly invoke this. This is an attack on the heart of Europe, European democracy. Ukraine is not a democracy, at least not at the moment. It's everything but a democracy. Um, so, you know, to hear these sort of tropes coming from the speaker is, uh, it's almost laughable, along with the neutrality comment, Mike. He's, uh, he's <laughs> going to retain my neutrality on yeah. this. In incredible. So uh, I'm going to ask Vanessa for a comment in a second, but before we go to Vanessa, I just want to put this on screen. So this was pushed out by Bloomberg. Uh, and uh, let's just look at a little bit of video. Uh, and what we're seeing here is a BBC reporter. So let's look at the video clip. Um, Mr. President, I would really like to hug you, but I'm not allowed. Why not? Please, do give me a hug, you know. <laughs> so that was the BBC's U Ukraine correspondent. Now, Vanessa, what strikes me here is we've got, we've got a parliament with no dissent. Uh, we've got a media which is hugging the president of Ukraine. Who is here to hold anybody to account? Absolutely nobody. 
And I mean, it's extraordinary, the racism in the statement that the speaker just made. I mean, well, they're like us. I mean, he's echoing the early media coverage of why we should be uber sympathetic to Ukrainians. It's because they look like us, they sound like us, they they have the same um, genes as us. And, and, you know, (laughs) this is just extraordinary. I mean, I know the BBC have symbolically been hugging Al-Qaeda for 11 years in Syria, but to actually get up and hug someone that is increasing or empowering Nazis in Ukraine is is just, I mean, to what level have we now stooped? I mean, it's astounding. I hadn't seen any of this because I've had my head down um, into everything that's going on here, but <laughs> I'm, just, I'm speechless, actually. Yes, the BBC, just as, uh, as impartial as the Speaker of the House. Where's the professionalism in the journalism, Mike? Look, every single thing that Zelensky says, does, right down to the T-shirt, the sweatshirt, or whatever. This is the emperor that only has one change of clothes. Everything that he does is totally staged and scripted, and it's run either out of the CIA's forward information operations or it's a British PR firm. We're not sure or a combination thereof. There's probably Hollywood scriptwriters involved in this wag the dog uh, uh, total stage production. <clears throat> that was a staged hug, okay? That was choreographed, that was scripted, that was for the public relations effort. Uh, around Zelensky. So, I mean, if anybody thinks otherwise, you, uh, you're very, very naive. Um, so let's look at, well, is this a PR fail? Certainly for Rishi Sunak, it looked like one, but uh, this image has been doing the rounds of Twitter. Now, I don't r- agree with Ian Bremmer here that the helmet suits Zelensky well. I don't think it does, but anyway, it certainly doesn't uh, suit, suit Rishi very well. But this was then the theme after they left. So really, the, the whole so you, Just, go ahead. What, what's with the boots, by the way, with Sunak? Those are, what, hiking boots? Yes. Are they combat boots? We're not sure. Are they going for hike in, up in the uh, the Brecon Beacons or what's going on here? It's, it's hard to say. But so this this was all of the, the entire visit was clearly about uh, arms and armaments. But let's have a look at what Boris uh, had to say. Uh, it's time to give the Ukrainians the extra equipment they need to defeat Putin and restore peace to Ukraine. That means longer range missiles and artillery. It means more tanks. It means planes. We have more than 100 Typhoon jets. We have more than 100 Challenger 2 tanks. Uh, The best single use for any of these items is to deploy them now for the protection of the Ukrainians, not least because this is how we guarantee our own long-term security. So Boris, with the hairstyle, is basically saying we need to send all our tanks and all our aircraft to Ukraine immediately. To become scrap, to become scrap, scrap metal. Scrap metal. And how does that keep Britain safe to, uh, to have all the tanks liquidated in the field, which they will be, and all the planes shot down like all the other airborne Ukrainian fighter jets that have been shot down. Do you have to understand the missile defense and the uh, surface-to-air missile batteries that Russia has far outnumber and outperform anything that not only Ukraine can put on the field, then what NATO can put on the field. Mm. You're talking about S-500, S-500S, advanced uh, surface-to-air missiles defense with ranges, Mike, of like up to 500 miles in some cases. So to think that they're going to make any difference with deploying a few typhoons, those typhoons are going to end up in the scrap heap. 
very, very quickly. This is why there is not a lot of air combat going on in that field because it's a stalemate right. because of missile defense. Um, so what was the Russian response? Well, here's uh, the comment from the uh, Russian embassy in London. Uh, on Zelensky's blitz visit, as they describe it. Uh, I think that's a carefully chosen headline, blitz visit to London. Uh, the hasty visit by Ukrainian commander-in-chief to the UK capital and his theatrical performance at Westminster were obviously aimed at preparing the Western public for upcoming decisions towards further satisfaction of the Kiev re regime's constant and ever-increasing demands. But here's the, the key point. Zelensky's fundraising event in London would, of course, have been incomplete without begging for more weapons that Kiev has long ceased to pretend are merely defensive in nature, this time Western fighter jets. Given that NATO artillery systems have been repeatedly used by Kiev's warmongers to shell peaceful cities in the Donbass, hardly any doubts remain that Western jets, should they be provided, would also be used in air raids against residential areas of the DPR, LPR, Kherson and Zaporozhye regions and uh, have come under that have come under Russian protection. We would like to remind London, in the event of such a scenario, the death toll of yet another round of escalation, as well as its military political consequences for the European continent and the whole world will be on the United Kingdom's hands. Now, I'm quite sure that that statement, if it hasn't already, is, is going to be spun by the, by the Western media as being a threat. I think it's a, 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 a reasonable uh, recognition of the reality. A reasonable rec recognition that these weapons, these jets will be used for provocations to escalate, Mike. And the other thing, which is total common sense, which seems to be lost on the British press and all of the sort of war drum beaters right now in Westminster and beyond, is that all of these Ukrainian pilots have been trained, probably all of them, on MiG fighters. Mm. What are they going to all of a sudden overnight be able to fly uh, typhoons or uh, British fighters? It's a joke. They'll have to do what some Saudi Arabia did, use U.S. pilots and U.S. planes and paint Saudi flags on the side, mm. okay, with, with, with U.S. reconnaissance doing targeting satellite, with U.S. air traffic uh, uh, handlers and engineers and tag teams. Yep. It's a joke. So the British are going to have to provide the full uh, uh, package of support. Indeed. It's not going to be hand them the fighters and they'll fly them. Uh, not after two weeks of training in the UK. How cynical to put that on the public and think that people are going to swallow that whole is pretty unbelievable. Right. Vanessa, we're going to move on to the earthquake in Syria, but have you got any thought, just final thoughts on this before we do? No, only that there was a recent article in Air and Space Forces magazine about the transition in Ukraine to using F-16s would be similar to that in Romania. But as one paragraph stated in the magazine, it took Romania a decade to transition um, to the F-16. So as you just mentioned, the training pilots in two weeks isn't going to to be very successful. Yeah, indeed. Okay, well, let's uh, let's move on to the earthquake in Syria and Turkey. And uh, well, first of all, you've got uh, U.S. Department of Treasury here uh, issuing Syria General License 23 to aid in earthquake disaster relief efforts. Yeah, I mean, basically, what we're seeing here that there's a huge amount of politicization going on here of a humanitarian disaster. And of course, that majority of it, if not all of it, is coming from uh, Western regimes, predominantly from the EU, UK and US. Let's just have a look at what they actually uh, state in here, bearing in mind that a huge number of countries, let's say in the non-aligned bloc, have been defying the Caesar Act and, and the sanctions that um, 
collectively punish any nations that come to the assistance of Syria at any point uh, in their rebuilding process, previously to the earthquake. So you've had countries like Venezuela, Iran, Russia, Algeria, Armenia, um, Egypt has offered aid, Iraq has uh, promised 28 uh, fuel tankers, um, Lebanon, Hezbollah have come to their aid, Hashid al-Shabi designated an Iranian militia in Iraq is also sending aid across the Albul Kamal uh, area of the border with Iraq between Iraq and Syria. So, you know, to a large degree, this is a, a PR fail for the West because what it's done is reveal the abject inhumanity from these regimes that have been effectively waging a war of attrition against Syria for more than 11 years. So what does this statement say? Today, the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, issued Syria General License GL23, which authorizes for 180 days, so six months, all transactions related to earthquake relief that would otherwise be prohibited by the Syrian sanctions regulations. They then go on, of course, to, to issue statements that are simply rendered hypocritical by their general policy towards Syria and the Syrian people. Um, <clears throat> But I think also what's important, um, they say, as international allies and humanitarian partners mobilize to help those affected, I want to make very clear that US sanctions in Syria will not stand in the way of life-saving efforts for the Syrian people. Well, I will go on to contest that. Um, and let's have a look at a statement uh, from Faris Shahabi. People might remember him from uh, his uh, activity during the siege of Aleppo. He was a member or the head of the Chamber of Commerce and an independent MP in Syria. What has he said? Thousands of people outside Syria cannot send donations to the earthquake relief efforts because of Western sanctions on the Syrian banking sector. That hasn't changed so far. We also have difficulties getting fuel and electricity because it's being occupied by the United States in the Northeast. Air traffic to Syria crippled. We cannot import much needed heavy equipment because of these sanctions. And I'll come on to that when I talk about the white helmets later on. So far, more than 300k civilians are displaced uh, in Aleppo and Latakia alone and in need of urgent help. So he's talking about the daily sufferings of civil society, relief efforts, and not about official governmental efforts that are also crippled by these sanctions. We hold Western governments fully responsible for every casualty and every drop of tears in this disaster. Then let's have a look at what Marwa Osman says. People will know her, of course, from Mideast Stream program. Um, she's based in Lebanon. Lebanon, of course, was also, although to, to a far lesser degree, but it did feel the impact of the earthquake. So um, I, I've basically cited her exactly she says, and this is a, a, a common opinion from Syrians, they don't believe that, that this move by the US is any more than a political move. It's not actually going to um, um, trickle through to the Syrian people that are in need of humanitarian relief in Syria, in, in the Syrian government protected areas. And in fact, Members of the Biden administration have made it clear that even though they are lifting sanctions, they will not work with the Syrian government. So I'm not quite sure how they think this aid is going to um, arrive to those areas that are under the protection of the Syrian government. So she basically describes this useless piece of paper um, 
can benefit Syrians as if they print it and use it as toilet paper. Why? Because no money can be wired to Syrian banks. PayPal and Patreon do not even allow us to open sites in Lebanon and Syria. If the US wants to help, yeah, right, let them fly in their helicopters from the occupied Syrian areas east of the Euphrates and send aid to Damascus Airport and Aleppo Airport. They won't. Why? Because if they do, all the coward states will follow and real help would get to, I would say, real Syrians. Let them prove this is not toilet paper by allowing ships to dock in Tartus and Latakia, by allowing wire transfers to all Syrian banks now, and by not intimidating individuals and groups crowdfunding for Syria. See GoFundMe, who removed aid for Syria. Um, now, coming on to the reference to GoFundMe, there's an article here in Al Mayadeen GoFundMe refusing to fund Syria relief effort and funding the white helmets. Let's see what this means. So a number of people, including Kivork al-Masyan, <clears throat> immediately raised and unfortunately went through GoFundMe, who have an appalling record, of course, from the truckers' convoy in Canada, where they did pretty much the same thing. So here we see a number of tweets. This is just one example. GoFundMe suspended the fundraisers for Syria following the disaster Earthgate. Once again, and always the problem is the U.S. sanctions that target nobody but the most powerless and vulnerable and which are so harsh that companies everywhere over-comply with them to reduce risks for themselves. But look who escapes sanction. From the perspective, 100... Yeah, we'll, have to, we'll have to carry on. Yeah. Ah, you're back. Right. So Sorry. the last the last we heard from you was look who escaped sanctions. Um, sorry. Um, the white helmets escaped sanctions uh, in Syria. Um, sorry. <clears throat> um, uh, because GoFundMe was able to raise 100,000 for the white helmets. So despite sanctions, the white helmets escape those sanctions uh, and people are able to raise from outside Syria as much money as they want for the white helmets because the white helmets are embedded in the area of Syria that is recognized by the West and that is under the control of their asset in Syria, Al-Qaeda. The white helmets, of course, um, a British military intelligence construct that was established in Turkey and Jordan in 2013, um, basically usurped the real Syria civil defense, which was created in 1953 and is the only recognized civil defense organization in Syria by the UN and by the civil defense organization in Geneva. The White Helmets are embedded exclusively with Al-Qaeda and are tasked, according to British government documents that have been um, made available, are tasked with criminalizing the Syrian government and their allies. And that includes, of course, the staging of chemical, alleged chemical weapon events like Duma 2018. So that is why one assumes they can escape sanctions. Um, then let's have a look at uh, further politicization. So here we see a number of uh, media putting out the headline that Syria is accused of playing politics with aid in the aftermath of the earthquake. And you have Charles Lister, of course, who was uh, the, the NATO Al-Qaeda fanboy who uh, focused in very early in the conflict on the existence of 70,000 moderate rebels which of course was later proven to be entirely fraudulent. 
He has written for foreign policy, Syria's earthquake victims are trapped by Assad. A headline in the New York Times on the 7th of February 2023, let's see what the headline was. The only border crossing for aid between Syria and Turkey is closed. Uh, and then highlighted Syria is not able to receive direct aid from many countries because of sanctions. So the border crossing has been a lifeline. So the focus there is on the effects of sanctions. Then on the 8th of February, the heading and subheading were then changed to highlight the alleged Syrian government's tight control. The only border crossing for UN aid from Turkey to Syria is hobbled as the Syrian government tightly controls what aid it allows into opposition-held, let's say, al-Qaeda-controlled areas. Let's have a look at the, the, the rationale behind this statement. So this is a current, pretty current map of Syria. The area in green is controlled by Turkish proxy armed forces, um, terrorist armed forces that have been remodeled as uh, the Syrian National Army under control of Turkey that has funded the Muslim Brotherhood uh, factions uh, and armed groups in Syria since uh, the beginning of the war in 2011. Uh, the areas in red controlled by the US uh, Kurdish separatist Contras. Um, and the area in blue, the, the majority of Syria, that is under the protection of the Syrian government. So if somebody could possibly explain to me how the Syrian government can novel the entry of um, humanitarian aid through the Turkish border that is effectively under the control of Al-Qaeda, Bab al-Hawa, which is the only humanitarian crossing open because Russia closed the majority down because it was known that they were being used to smuggle weapons into the armed groups in Idlib. Bab al-Hawa is known as Al-Qaeda's uh, trading post, and it's an area where Al-Qaeda received so-called humanitarian aid, store it, and then sell it at extortionate prices to Syrian civilians. So the, the entire idea that the Syrian government could be responsible for preventing the entry of humanitarian aid, and in reality, it is Turkey, um, it is Erdogan that has been slowing down aid deliveries both into Idlib and then, of course, um, to the Syrian people in the area in green. And then let's also have a look here the Syrian government in the last two days has been preparing to send a convoy of humanitarian aid to Idlib, so to the Al-Qaeda-occupied areas through the Sarakeb crossing. Sarakeb is in southern Idlib and is back under control of the Syrian government and the Syrian armed forces um, since 2020. <clears throat> 2023. The convoy was at that point only waiting for representatives of the United Nations, but now it's hoped that it will enter uh, Idlib by Sarakeb on Saturday the 11th at the latest. Syria has also informed the United Nations that in case the UN is late in responding to the crisis, the government reserves the right to act alone. Of course, perfectly acceptable, uh, having declared a state of emergency in the earthquake hit region. Um, UAE has been negotiating for three days with Idlib armed groups, Al-Qaeda dominated, to open the crossings, but they were refusing, probably under pressure, to maintain the narrative that the Syrian government is blocking aid. These groups were finally persuaded to allow the entry of an aid convoy by the Syrian Red Crescent and international organizations actually based in Syria. But let's have a look at what happens to humanitarian aid that enters Idlib from Turkey through the Bab al-Hawa crossing. Oh, <laughs> 
by um, Syrian war journalist Wassim, uh, Wassim uh, Isa, who lost both his legs in an ISIS attack uh, during the Yarmouk uh, liberation campaign to the south of Damascus. Um, here, what you actually see are uh, competing armed groups raiding the relief office in Afrin to the north uh, of uh, Syria and under the control of the Turkish armed groups. But those humanitarian aid supplies had already been stolen by one of the uh, pre one of one of another uh, armed group. As I said, much of this uh, aid that is coming in is being controlled by mafia-style uh, armed groups in these areas. <clears throat> and then, when we're talking about politicization, let's have a look at this. Netanyahu says Syria requests. Um, quake relief, Israel ready to send it, as Kivok Al-Masyan said, and, and I've also had it confirmed by uh, sources here in Damascus. Syria didn't request quake relief from Israel. Netanyahu is making up this allegation, and I can assure you of that with 100% confidence. Um, you, did you mention that you had an Andrew Mitchell yeah, uh, we have, video, we, Yes, you wanted to quote Andrew Mitchell, so let's have a look at what oh, Andrew okay. Mitchell had to say on news okay. night, a, night, a night or two ago. Okay. One crossing that's open, that's all as a result of the Russian and Chinese veto. And we've spoken tonight to Martin Griffiths, the head of UN OCHA, to ask what we're going to do. We need to get these other crossings open. And uh, the one that was open, partly um, because of border restrictions, but also because of the effects of the earthquake, is now shut. So this one route of getting stuff through to northern Syria is currently closed. Britain's response to the immediate challenge? to help the one organisation that is operating on the ground. Britain has funded the White Helmets, which during the war were a sort of civil defence unit, but they are the first responders on the ground there, and we are looking at giving them more support so that they can put fuel in their vehicles. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, right, so what I've actually been told by sources with contacts um, inside USAID is that the UK and the US right now see this as an opportunity to repair the tarnished reputation of the White Helmets, who of course uh, were, were very much um, discredited, particularly by their role in staging events during the alleged Duma chemical attack and providing um, fraudulent witness statements to uh, the OPCW um, team. Uh, and of course, the OPCW has been um, completely discredited by the distant inspectors who have exposed uh, the various reports, including the latest um, identification and investigation team report, which is attributed claim, uh, sorry, blame to the Syrian government. Um, have, have basically the inspectors demonstrated that the OP OPCW was being influenced to produce the results that were effectively um, fraudulent and covering up the crimes of the UK, US and France that bombed Damascus uh, on the basis of the claim of chemical weapon use. So here we have um, the US aid Administrator Samantha Powers calls regarding the response to the earthquake in Turkey and Syria and mirroring the language that we're hearing from uh, UK officials in a call with Raid al Salah, head of the Syria Civil Defense, also known as White Helmets and a long-standing USAID partner. Administrator Power reiterated USAID support 
for the people of Syria and offered condolences for the lives lost. Um, let's have a look. People who followed the Syria war um, from the beginning will know our work on exposing the White Helmets, um, let's say, Oscar-winning performances um, in their PR complex uh, that, that was producing these, these reports to, to effectively present the White Helmets um, as Nobel Peace Prize nominees. Let's have a look at this video, Mike. Of course, uh, Vanessa, one of the most famous photographs from the Syrian campaign, uh, the Syrian war was Dusty Boy, but uh, somehow that boy seems to have come out with no dust on him whatsoever, Patrick. Clean as a whistle. And he, when he was saying tack beer, he wasn't talking about let's go to the pub and celebrate. Okay, these are hardcore jihadists. Yes. So, yeah. and, and, I mean, extraordinary because presumably this boy would have been uh, buried since, what was it, 4 a.m. Uh, on Monday morning. And yet, as you point out, he emerges perfectly clean and perfectly jolly. Um, it's quite clear that he knows the people who have dug him out and that he thinks this is a great game. Of course, this is also in keeping with the, the tsunami of videos that we used to see um, from when the White Helmets got involved in producing the propaganda uh, in Syria to defend uh, the armed groups and to maintain the idea or the myth of them being uh, moderate rebels. So let's look at how much the US is pledging, 85 million for Turkey, Syria, earthquake relief. And the other point that I wanted to make, of course, that um, the various handlers of the White Helmets have been trying desperately to renew their image with their connection to Ukraine. You know, there has been a huge amount of propaganda um, linking uh, the White Helmets to uh, um, the paramedic efforts in Ukraine and trying to, to basically put them back in the limelight. And it's been failing. And what we've seen in the media is an actual obfuscation of the White Helmet brand. We've seen them uh, stating the Syria civil defense or simply saying witnesses or sources in Idlib have been describing uh, various events there. But now what we see is, is a flood of white helmet references uh, in colonial media. Um, so 85 million is going into Idlib, only to Idlib, this little corner of northwest Syria that is controlled by the US and UK assets, including, as I keep saying, Al-Qaeda under various rebands currently, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. Um, so 85 million for Turkey and U.S. partner organizations in Syria. So that makes it even clearer. 
And then let's have a look here at, at some of the propaganda that is now starting to, to come out as a result of this white helmet rebranding or this white helmet um, renewal process. So here you have a headline one day ago in The Independent, which has been basically copy-pasted by the majority of, of the um, pro-NATO media. Heinous bombing of areas hit by earthquake by Assad's forces. Um, Alessia Kearns, uh, who is the Foreign Office Committee chairman, Mike, sorry, I've, I've slightly forgotten, um, statement came after rescue teams from the White Helmets issued a letter to leaders urging them to pressure Damascus to ensure there is no bombing in the affected areas. So, of course, armed groups are not taking advantage of the humanitarian tragedy and launching drones, which is uh, what I discovered when I spoke to military contacts in this area. I was told that the armed groups had launched uh, various drones and that the Syrian Arab Army Air Defense had launched uh, a, a defense against those and brought the drones down. That was actually um, what this event was all about. Of course, that is not investigated and it's not even mentioned by uh, mainstream media, including the BBC that also ran with this story. Um, so Foreign Secretary James Cleverley also criticized the Assad regime so we're back into that kind of lexicon for the completely unacceptable bombing of Morea in the wake of the natural disaster. Morea, by the way, is uh, under the control of Al-Qaeda and has been for some time. Then, as I mentioned, who's to say that the armed groups are not taking advantage of a humanitarian disaster um, to launch attacks and, and to move forward? Um, on the basis, of course, that there had been a lot of talk of liberation of the area uh, around the M4 that had been um, controlled by Russia and Turkey for some time. Um, and here we see ISIS militants take advantage of mass massive earthquake to mount prison break. Now, the Raju prison near Afrin in northern Syria is actually under control of the Turkish intelligence. Also interesting that Turkey has recently been um, talking about a rapprochement with President Assad um, and northern Syria now threatened by floods following deadly earthquake. Um, let's have a look at the content. Both these articles, by the way, are from the cradle so people can go and check them out and the links will be uh, in the show notes. So um, just taking from this article very quickly, Countless winter crops in the Hasako countryside, so that's the northeast, were flooded and potentially destroyed, threatening food security in Syria, which is already at risk due mainly to U.S. occupation of the northeast and of wheat and barley resources and oil resources. And it's worth also mentioning here that most Syrians have said, well, we don't care about the sanctions. We don't need Western humanitarian response. We actually just want them to get out of Syria so that we have access to our resources. So the flooding of these tributaries, which is going on now, comes in the midst of a crisis across northern Syria, which has been caused, by, according to many experts, by Ankara's monopolization and weaponization of water accessibility, given that most of these river branches originate in Turkish territory. Since 2019, Turkey has been cutting off water supply to two million civilians in northeast Syria. There is speculation that the Turkish dams and artificial lakes built by Ankara on the Euphrates River may have caused the earthquake. Ibrahim Saeed, a geography professor at Damascus University, said following the quake that the huge amount of water in the Ataturk Dam caused the earthquake, which collected 48 billion cubic meters of Euphrates water. 
This dam, he says, is a violation of nature and of the water rights of Iraq and Syria. There is a history of Turkey um, <clears throat> orchestrating famine both in Iraq and in Syria through uh, the restriction of water supply. Deputy Director of Iraq's Seismological Center, uh, Hasnain Jassim, Turkey has built 2,000 dams, reservoirs, and artificial lakes, some of which are near the epicenter of the earthquake. This is one of the reasons for the activation of the earth. Of course, it is also interesting. I mean, there are going to be many conspiracy theories concerning the cause of the earthquake. Um, it is interesting for me particularly that it came immediately after Turkey had been accusing um, the U.S. of interfering in state affairs in Turkey and uh, that the U.S. embassy and I think other embassies had withdrawn their embassy staff just before the earthquake. Um, people were asking um, for uh, where they can donate. Uh, unfortunately, we're still trying to reinstate the various GoFundMe uh, fundraisers. <clears throat> we're working on alternatives, but for now, I would recommend the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, which at least has its headquarters in Damascus, and it is one of the organizations working quite closely with the Syrian government. And people can screen, sorry, freeze their screens um, afterwards uh, to take the details down. We'll put those details under the. Uh, we'll put those details in the show notes as well, uh, so mm. that anybody can can get them. Um, okay, now let me just uh, move through this a little bit. I just want to finish this segment, uh, Vanessa, just by saying, if anybody mm. wants to get uh, some of our coverage uh, about the white helmets going back to I don't know 2017 or whatever it was. 2015. 2015. Yeah. Uh, here's uh, the <laughs> yeah. UK column white helmets page. Have a look at that. Uh, that page in turn uh, links to uh, all the articles you wrote mm. for 21st Century War and the White Helmets files. Um, so those are the two places mainly to go to, I suppose, if you want to get the history of, of how we yeah. got to this point and what the White Helmets are. OK, let's uh, let's move on then. If you like what the UK column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please uh, head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership would be very welcome and much needed. Uh, but please do also consider uh, picking something up at the UK column shop. Uh, we'd appreciate it if you shared material on the various platforms as well. Now, Patrick, let's move on to uh, Ukraine. Uh, and uh, well, what's the latest? Oh, just a little update on uh, what's going on with the Ukrainian conflict. A lot is going on uh, this week and some of the more noteworthy uh, developments. Let's take a well, look. Well, OK, we'll talk, take a look at this first. So here's Defense Intelligence, their latest propaganda piece, uh, saying that, well, they're finally admitting that the Russians have likely made tactical gains uh, around Bakhmut. Uh, and then they said the in the south, Russian units have made advances. So they're acknowledging advances. Uh, however, Russian units have likely suffered particularly heavy casualties around Volodar. Uh, as uh, inexperienced units have been committed, Russian troops likely fled and abandoned at least 30 mostly intact armored vehicles in a single incident after a failed assault. So uh, they don't really know what's going on. That's the, the you know, words like likely and so on. Um, but uh, look, here's here's the thing. Uh, today, uh, massive attacks, uh, missile attacks in Ukraine. Uh, Air alert again announced in all oblasts of Ukraine, says Euromaidan Press. Uh, that was twice there were major uh, air alerts uh, today. Uh, but huge numbers of, of missiles going into Ukraine. But already the mainstream press uh, and various governments getting very excited about it because, uh, well, here's Reuters. Ukraine says 
two missiles crossed into Romania and Moldova. So the claim is that the missiles flew through Romanian and Moldovan airspace on the way to Ukraine um, from Russia. Well, that's what the article says, but the headline implies something implies else. Implies something else, it? absolutely. Yeah. And uh, and in fact, the the implication here and what's being pushed by uh, the R Romanian uh, authorities is that, well, hold on, we're a NATO country. This is so irresponsible by Reuters, but it should be a good example for people watching as to the real subtle propaganda. Yes. Think about how tense things are right now. NATO, uh, NATO Article 5 triggers and that sort of trap with Romania, for instance, Mike. And then they run a headline like this, even if it didn't happen. But it just seeds the sort of conversation and it increases the tension. Yes. And politicians read this. Listen, let's be honest, Mike. There's MPs and congressmen that'll read that headline like, believe it. like Lindsey Graham, and that means Russian missiles landed in those countries. They're not that smart. They can't tell the difference. And so this the, it moves into the rhetoric and they just raise the tension. Uh, so Moldova's defense ministry has confirmed that, uh, that a Russian missile violated its airspace, or at least that's their claim, and they have apparently summoned the uh, uh, Russian ambassador. Uh, so where does that take us? That takes us to the Guardian coverage of the same. Well, it's good news, Mike. Uh, things have gotten serious and uh, desperate, apparently, that they've deployed Luke Harding uh, to Kiev uh, to report on this. This, the most discredited journalist in the entire mainstream media uh, is uh, our man in Kiev. Uh, the Guardian have got their guy there hauled up in some kind of five-star hotel, uh, double suite somewhere in the heart of Kiev, right, right in the front line of the action, of course. Good. Uh, so there's Luke Harding. So totally discredited, made up a fabricated story about Paul Manafort uh, visiting Julian Assange. The Guardian never retracted it along with uh, d divulging the passwords uh, to these files that they ended up indicting Assange about. So we, we just thought it's fitting, Mike, that we're going to update the profile picture here of Luke Harding. And just to know that they've got the best guy on the job there, uh, Clown World exclusive, our man in Kiev. So there he is, folks. Uh, but here's the real, and, and obviously look at the staged photo, uh, the, the Guardian running here, all the serious guys, in the bunker, war map, it's, it, it's, it's almost laughable that these are uh, actual uh, authentic photographs of right. anything, but this is what they're pushing. Now, Luke Harding's pushing in here that Ukraine's uh, fierce resistance and Russians are taking losses and so forth. Right. So he's a propagandist, that's what his job is. He's been caught spinning fake news and yet the Guardian, shameless as they are, will just run him as their sort of main correspondent. They're, they're anti-Russia guy, they're, they're manning Kiev. Here's the real update here. This is uh, from a Telegram channel, Mill Chronicles. So pretty accurate battle map. Uh, we've cross-referenced this with a number of other uh, similar channels and they're all saying the same thing. So this is Bakhmut here. This is where the heavy fighting is. Major offensive today. Major offensive by Russia. That's what all reports are basically showing. Yeah. Um, so, and, and it looks like in many ways, at least in this theater, uh, the Ukrainian forces are hugely outgunned. So it's not good news uh, for Ukraine, but you're not going to read that in any of the Western mainstream media right. reportage. So, but here's a really interesting story, Mike, that's broken. And this is interesting. And as we say, there's two political maxims. Timing is everything and nothing happens by coincidence in politics. Zelensky takes credit for derailing the Minsk agreements. Why on earth would he be saying this now? This is an extended interview with Der Spiegel. 
which just was printed, I believe, yesterday, and has a number of uh, bizarre admissions by Zelensky. What could possibly be going on here? Let's take a look at what was said. And this, Zelensky said that he viewed the agreements as a concession on Ukraine's part and never actually once sought to implement them. Instead, they were merely used to exchange prisoners with the two breakaway Donbass republics. And this is the detail of that. He said, but as for Minsk, the Minsk peace accords as a whole, I told Macron and Merkel, we cannot implement it like this, says Zelensky. Uh, I told Putin the same as the other two. Uh, they were su surprised and said, if we had known beforehand that you would ch change the meaning of our meetings, then there would have been problems even before the summit. So here's the question, Mike, why is this happening now? Is he covering for the statements by Angela Merkel? Merkel. Just I a couple... Is he doing a quid pro quo, a favor right. for his Western partners? Is that what's going on? Could be. So this is the question we have to ask ourselves. Timing is everything and nothing happens by coincidence in politics. So Zelensky has been put up to say this for a reason. The question is why. Yeah. So keep your uh, radars up, everybody, and look for clues as to what this means. So, But that leads us to the big uh, ticket item, Mike, this week, the Nord Stream pipelines. So we've got some uh, movement on the Nord Stream story at long last, the Nord Stream pipelines here. And what is actually going on? Well, there's some interesting revelations from Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Seymour Hirsch, which have come out state-sponsored terrorism. The question is who is responsible for the state-sponsored terrorism? Is it uh, an Anglo-American job? That's the question. Mm -hmm. Will we get answers on this? Well, let's take a look at what Cy Hirsch has to say here. And this is the Substack headline. This article has made absolute thunderous tremors mm -hmm. throughout Washington and the media. The mainstream are very careful not to touch this too, uh, too much because it's explosive. How America took out the Nord Stream pipelines. All we've had is denials ever since this happened in September. Total denial. So the New York Times called it a mystery, said Hirsch, but the United States executed a covert sea operation that was kept secret until now. He's quoting anonymous sources here. Here's what he says. Basic gist of it. This is a well-written article, by the way. You expect no less uh, from Seymour Hirsch. Uh, last June, Navy divers, important point there, Navy divers operating under cover of a widely publicized mid summer NATO exercise known as Baltops 22. We discussed this at the time on yes. this program as well. Planted the remotely triggered explosives that three months later uh, were detonated and destroyed three of the four Nord Stream pipelines according to a source with direct knowledge of operational planning here. Okay, that's Hirsch and he goes on. The divers were Navy only and not members, this is important, not members of Americans Special Operations Command. Why? whose covert operations must be reported to Congress and briefed in advance to the Senate House leadership uh, to the so-called Gang of Eight. So do you see what's happened here? They moved it away from special ops using regular Navy divers out of Panama City, okay, deployed them to do uh, part of, during the bell tops in the sort of low, uh, the shallow part of the seabed there um, where divers could access. So the Biden administration was doing everything possible to avoid leaks as the planning took place late in 2021 and into the first months of 2022. Do you see when they started planning this? Did they know what was coming? Of course they knew that was coming. That's the implication here. Mm -hmm. And that's to me one of the most explosive parts of this report. Now, so Joe Biden uh, basically said, do you remember back in, I think it was last February of 2022, he said, 
that we're going to sort out the Nord yes, Stream pipelines. Yes. Let's roll that clip. If Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine again, then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. But what what, how will you how will you do that exactly since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will. Uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. So that was open admission. And what's important here, Mike, is that he did say that publicly and didn't use special ops, doesn't have to do congressional uh, oversight with the House and Senate. Uh, committees on that. So, so this this off this is a new type of deniability. It's a non-deny deniability. In other words, it gives them safe, so they can't say they're covering anything up. This is the, one of the most cynical mm. and mendacious moves by any uh, U.S. administration, maybe in history. This is a new type of warfare. I mean, did anybody vote for this? This is threatening World War Three. Right. No one's ever. I mean, the U.S. has never openly. No one's ever openly, not a NATO country, gone after infrastructure like this. That, that's a joint project of one of their closest allies in Germany. Hugely dangerous. This, was this a unilateral move by the United States or did they have a partner in this? Very good question because we've got to remember that, of course, there was the allegation uh, for, as a result of a leak, a, apparently a hack of an iCloud account, that a message had been sent to Antony Blinken from Liz Truss at the time saying it's done interesting yeah well and that was reported at the time it was absolutely yes so was, was there any pushback on that i remember seeing much pushback from the media claiming it was fake right so does it stand as data as evidence i don't think there's been any uh, absolute denial of it so that that lends to the idea mike this is an anglo-american job right the special relationship added again Back to Seymour Hersh, let's take a look at what else is in here. What became clear to participants, according to the source with direct knowledge of the process, is that Jake Sullivan intended for the group to come up with a plan for the destruction of the two Nord Stream pipelines and that he was delivering on the desires of the president. So Jake Sullivan being the key actor here, he is a, a former Hillary Clinton staffer. He is one of the architects of the Russiagate hoax and that the Alpha Bank hoax and all of these things that uh, they used to, to create a, a conspiracy theory that Trump was being uh, backed by the Russians here. So let's take a look at this. So here are the key players in this plan, according to Hirsch, Victoria Nuland, Anthony Blinken, and of course at the end, uh, Jake Sullivan uh, there. That's Victoria Nuland, who is one of the most famous you know, architects of pretty much every pro-Ukrainian or anti-Russian policy. Certainly she gets credit for the Maidan coup, mm. uh, but Tony Blinken, of course, is involved in this. But let's focus on this person because Jake Sullivan um, is front and center. And this is one of the most, you have to remember the people like this, these career operatives, they're not elected. They come along for the ride and they're given some incredible power. Nobody voted for this guy. But yet he's a Hillary Clinton operative. It's basically running Clinton and Obama policies through the Biden uh, administration. If right. you believe that Joe Biden has no power at all and he's just an octogenarian animatronic puppet, mm -hmm. which there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that might be the case. Um, but let's take a look at Ned Price, State Department spokesperson, best buddies 
with Jake Sullivan, was challenged by a journalist in the press briefing about this Seymour Hersh article. This is a very revealing. Watch this exchange. I'm sure you're aware of the new report from Seymour Hersh, how America took up the Nord Stream pipeline and the White House's denial of any involvement. Given the longstanding U.S. opposition to the pipeline, Secretary Blinken's calling its demise a tremendous opportunity, and Secretary, Under Secretary of State Newland's saying that the U.S. officials were pleased with the destruction of the pipeline, especially the, the Sweden's secretive investigation. Do you think the U.S. government's uh, denial of involvement is credible? I absolutely do, and I repeat it here. Um, so let me follow up on that, if I might. Um, have you or anybody else at the State Department um, any communication with German, Norwegian ambassadors or other allies or officials on this matter? On the matter of Nord Stream 2? On the matter of the latest allegations, um, which give a fairly, I mean, it's it one is, anonymous it is, source, it, but, is, but it is a fairly it is, uh, it would It would not be... Uh, it, it would it would not be typical for us to engage allies and partners on something that is utter and complete nonsense and that should be rejected out of hand uh, by anyone who is looking at it through uh, <clears throat> through an objective lens. Yes, go ahead. One, one, one more aspect on this. One of the allegations that Hirsch makes is that it was taken off the CIA in order to prevent involvement uh, oversight uh, as a covert operation. Did you read the piece? I'm familiar with it. Uh, one of his allegations is that it was taken off the Look, rather, rather than let this this propaganda get be, be aired in in the briefing room but let, 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 let me just say it is a fundamental misunderstanding of oversight in our US Congress beyond getting his facts entirely wrong as he has before in very uh, high profile ways uh, it is a fundamental misunderstanding to suggest that our intelligence community is not subject to oversight Anyone who writes that, anything who writes anything like that, no, no, uh, should, no, that, should not be not believed on any no, no, no. that he, he wrote was that it was taken off of uh, a CIA and put under military in order to prevent... Our military is also subject to rigorous oversight. That, that, that's my uh, question. That's yes. my question. The answer is yes. Do you recognize and abide by the um, war powers clause in such a situation? So what's what did you what did you conclude from that exchange? Well, he didn't read. He hasn't read the article. He hasn't He's even, familiar with it, but he didn't read it. So the, the State Department spokesman didn't even bother to read the article, and yet he launches a character assassination against Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hersh. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of detail in that in, in Hersh's article. Yeah, plenty of things that you could pick off, and the whole point of it is that they didn't you they didn't have to go through oversight because they pretty much did it through conventional. Uh, teams and through a protocol that, that basically is routine using regular Navy divers. Biden even said he was going to do it. Victoria Newland warned she was going to do it. They said openly. So this is what this is the whole point of this, Mike. So Russia's reacted here, and uh, R Russia's reaction has been basically they want sort of pay dirt on this. Mm -hmm. So here, Dmitry Peskov has made a number of uh, statements on this, very strong statements about this. So, you know, from Russia's point of view, they already suspected this was the case. This probably isn't a big surprise to them. Um, but this changes the uh, calculus, Mike, doesn't it, on diplomatic negotiations? It does. This gives a lot of leverage to Russia, and America loses a lot of leverage. Britain loses a lot of leverage. NATO all they can stand around do is make denials at this point. Mm -hmm. Not a very strong position to be in. Indeed. Indeed. Okay, well, of course, one of the other uh, areas where there has been apparently Western 
uh, interference in Ukrainian affairs, SpaceX and Starlink in particular. Uh, now, if we go back uh, to June, uh, sorry, July 2022 here, uh, Euromaidan Press uh, tweeting out 15,000 Starlink user kits have been delivered to Ukraine. Ukrainian troops cut off at Azovstal, use Starlink to send and publish online photos and videos chronicling their plight along with public and private messages to the outside world. Uh, so that was what uh, was being tweeted out at the time. Uh, around the same time, we have uh, this political report, Ukraine X, how Elon Musk's space satellites changed the war on the ground. And if we get a quote from this, uh, they're talking about uh, Elon Musk being the man to thank, embedded in frontline hot zone just south of strategic town of Izium, uh, the Ukraine's, uh, in Ukraine's war-ravaged east. Uh, Alexei, who declined to give his last name for security reasons, is now a power user of Starlink, a satellite communication system owned by Musk SpaceX. But the important thing here is, Patrick, as much as uh, many people at the time were saying this was a bad idea and it shouldn't be happening, it was being used for, well, at worst, propaganda to send out photographs from Azovstal or whatever for communication. Uh, it wasn't being used for specifically military purposes, but that situation then changed. Um, and so Starlink, uh, SpaceX rather, has now made a statement on this. So here is uh, Gwen Shotwell, who's uh, the SpaceX president saying that Ukrainians have leveraged Starlink in ways that were unintentional and not part of any agreement. Uh, there are things that we can do to limit their ability to do that. There are things that we can do and we have done. Uh, and so uh, they were particularly objecting uh, about the fact that Starlink was no longer being used just for communications and personal communications. It was being used to actually uh, task uh, certain weapon systems. Like drones. Like instance. drones, for example. Drones, for instance. It, yeah, yeah it, that was the one thing that they mentioned in particular. So so uh, they seem to have uh, decided against uh, any uh, future use of Starlink for this, this kind of purpose. And you have to remember, this comes on the heels of just a couple of months ago, uh, when uh, Starlink announced that they're cutting off internet access from the Starlink array of satellites right. to Ukraine because they weren't paying the bill. I think it was something like, it wasn't a lot of money, it'd be 21 million for the whole country per month or something like that. Trump change compared to what they've been forking out for Zelensky into that sort of money pit that's called Kiev. Right. So what's 21 million a month? That's like nothing. You know, even Britain could afford uh, to pick that pick up that bill, right? Um, so, so this is interesting. So it seems like they've been gradually backing away from this, which is a very interesting position from Elon Musk and from Starlink, considering all of the revelations, especially with the Twitter files right. of, of recent. So let's uh, move on to the, the Twitter files hearings then, Patrick. So these were uh, hearings in Washington. This was happening yesterday. So we were watching some of this, also participating in some very good discussions online with Twitter spaces on this as well with whistleblowers and journalists and things like that. So what was going on here? And that was the big question, Mike. Uh, what did they have um, on offer? So the, the Twitter files hearings have been interesting uh, because it, this is a chance for uh, people to be questioned directly. Um, so one of the uh, representatives, uh, Nancy Mace, a Republican congressman, um, she's got uh, uh, Gad, uh, Ms. Gad, she was the head of legal um, moderation or whatever, the head lawyer for censorship, basically, right. under the Dorsey regime at Twitter. Watch this exchange. It's very, very revealing and literally not pulling any punches. Another example of what Twitter has done to censor folks is uh, from Dr. Martin Koldorf, a Harvard-educated epidemiologist who once tweeted, 
COVID vaccines are important for high-risk people and their caretakers. Those with prior natural infection do not need it, nor children. The Twitter files reveal this tweet was deemed false information because it ran contrary to the CDC. So my first question this morning of Ms. Gaddy, may I ask of you, where did you go to medical school? I did not go to medical school. I'm sorry? I did not go to medical school. That's what I thought. Why do you think you or anyone else at Twitter had the medical expertise to censor a doctor's expert opinion? Our policies regarding COVID were designed to protect individuals. We were seeing... You guys censored Harvard-educated doctors, Stanford-educated doctors, doctors that are educated in the best places in the world, and you silenced those voices. My next question is, did the U.S. government... Oh, excuse me. I have another chart I want to show you, Ms. Gaddy. Um, I have another tweet by someone with a following of a full 18,000 followers. This person put a chart from the CDC on Twitter. It's the CDC's own data, so it's accurate by your standards. And you all labeled this as misleading. You're not a doctor, right, Ms. Gaddy? No, I'm not. Okay. What makes you think you or anyone else of Twitter have the medical expertise to censor actual, accurate CDC data? I'm not familiar with these particular situations. Yeah, I'm sure you're not. But this is what Twitter did. They labeled this as inaccurate. It is the government's own data. I have another question, my last one for you, Ms. Gaddy. Did the U.S. government ever contact you or anyone at Twitter to pressure Twitter to moderate or censor certain tweets? Yes or no? We have a program. Did the U.S. government ever contact you or anyone at Twitter to censor or moderate certain tweets? Yes or no? We receive legal demands to remove content from the platform from the U.S. government and governments all around the world. Those are published on a third-party website, and anyone can review Thank them. God for Matt Taibbi. Thank God for Elon Musk for allowing to show us in the world that Twitter was basically a subsidiary of the FBI, censoring real medical voices with real expertise that put real Americans' lives in danger because they didn't have that information. So straight away, the, the Twitter lawyer said, we, we receive legal uh, requests from the U.S. government. That's the point. They're not legal. If the U.S. government's involved in denying protected First Amendment's rights to U.S. citizens, that's not illegal. That's, that's not legal. It's not, it's not, it's not legal, yeah. right? It's unconstitutional. That shows you how divorced from reality, these people at Twitter are these overpaid bureaucrats, super bureaucrats, censors, and unbelievable the amount of power. They were censoring the global conversation, Mike, mm. fr from their office in San Francisco, right? determining what people around the world had in terms of information about COVID, about vaccines, about lockdowns, about all of that stuff. Unbelievable. Now, it gets worse. So the Hunter Biden laptop, can we all agree that this is real, this actually happened? I mean, we, uh, we can. It, it was never fake. It was never Russian disinformation. It was real. It, it remains real. And in the future, it will be real as well. But not according to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Listen to what AOC thinks. She still thinks it is Russian disinformation. Watch this. Here's the deal. Before I even get into my questions, I think that... The, the story here with the, New York, uh, with the Washington Post reporting 
is that what they're saying right here, when the New York Post first reported in October 2020 that it had obtained contents of a laptop computer allegedly owned by Joe Biden's son Hunter, there was an immediate roadblock faced by other news outlets that hoped to corroborate reporting, as many did. The newspaper wasn't sharing what it obtained. New York Post had this alleged information and was trying to publish it without any corroboration, without any backup information. They were trying to publish it to Twitter. Twitter did not let them, and now they were upset. I believe that political operatives who sought to inject explosive disinformation with the Washington Post couldn't get away with it. And now they're livid, and they want the ability to do it again. They want the ability to inject this again. So they've dragged a social media platform here in Congress. They're weaponizing the use of this committee so that they can do it again. A whole hearing about a 24-hour hiccup in a right-wing political operation. That is why we are here right now. And it is, it, it's just a, an abuse of public resources, an abuse of public time. We could be talking about health care. We could be talking about bringing down the cost of prescription drugs. We could be talking about abortion rights, civil rights, voting rights. But instead... <laughs> I don't even know where to start with that. So she's, it's, a, it's a political partisan cover-up. Yeah. She's upset because this was exposed. Still in her mind and to her supporters and Democratic voters, the Hunter Biden laptop story was fake. It was a Russian disinformation campaign. Mike, we are in such a dangerous place in society that people can't acknowledge that certain things are actually uh, what they are, which is facts and or truth. And we've got AOC and politicians banging on the propaganda narrative. Now, things got a little bit testy later uh, with the congressman from Louisiana, Clay Higgins, and he basically did a dressing down of all of the Yoel Roth, uh, Gad, and the other uh, moderator they had up there. Uh, so watch this. This got serious at the end. Um, for the record, Mr. Baker, Ms. Gotti, Mr. Roth, Mr. Nairoli, are you here under the advice of counsel, and do you have counsel present? Yes, sir. That was a yes? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, I do. Yes, I was subpoenaed. That's good to know. I'm glad you all have counsel present. Mr. Chairman, for the uh, for submission for the record, I'd like consent to submit the Twitter files dated uh, December the 8th, posted by the New York Post regarding the suppression of conservative commentators. Like that submitted. Without objection, to ordered. Mr. Chairman, thank you. I'd like to also submit for the record a timeline of. Uh, events with cited sources outlining strong evidence of the Biden family organized criminal actions would certainly indicate that we've crossed the threshold of reasonable suspicion. I'd like this timeline submitted for the record. Excuse me, Mr. Chairman. Uh, just, where is that from, that timeline? Timeline in my hand, boss. I'll, I'll get it to you shortly. Um, Bottom line is that the FBI had the Biden crime family laptop for a year. They knew it was leaking. They knew it would hurt the Biden campaign. So the FBI used its relationship with Twitter to suppress criminal evidence being revealed about Joe Biden one month before the 2020 elections. You, ladies and gentlemen, interfered with the United States of America 2020 presidential election knowingly and willingly. That's the bad news. It's going to get worse. 
because this is the investigation part. Later comes the arrest part. Your attorneys are familiar with that. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to spend five hours with these ladies and gentlemen doing depositions surely yet to come. But for right now, I'll yield the balance of my time to my... Okay, so that is getting serious. So putting them on notice, so prosecutions, arrests. I've not heard this before. This is the first we've heard. So we'll see how this, this pans out. We'll, we'll see. Okay, and in a slightly related uh, situation, uh, Wednesday's Prime Minister's questions. Uh, well, Rishi Sunak was asked a question about the recent uh, uh, exposure of 77 Brigade. Let's have a listen to this. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Big Brother Watch recently released a report into unaccountable government bodies such as the Counter Disinformation Unit, the Rapid Response Unit, and the British Army's 77th Brigade. We've seen huge swathes of public money being spent recording political dissent on social media under the guise of tackling misinformation. Politicians, including myself, the Leader of the Opposition, academics, activists, and journalists, and even members of public, have been subjected to monitoring by Whitehall officials. This at the same time as we're waiting for the reporting of the Pitchford inquiry into questionable state surveillance on, on campaigns like the Stephen Lawrence campaign. So can the Prime Minister tell us how much public money is spent on these units and whether he thinks it's a justifiable um, thing to do in our democracy to spend public money in this manner? And could you also update the House on the progress of the Pitchford inquiry? Prime Minister. Well, uh, Mr Speaker, I have to get back to the Honourable Lady on the Pitchford inquiry and indeed to give her an exact figure. But in general, uh, I think certainly I on this side of the House believe very strongly in free speech and we'll make sure that we continue to protect it wherever we can. So he was asked he was asked three very specific questions there. He simply sideswiped them, not interested, not prepared to engage at all. That man needs to be he needs to lose his job. It is that that is unacceptable in my opinion. Uh, he and, slithered uh, he slithered, slithered right yes. out of that question. Amazing. Um, so that's that. Now, uh, now let's move on to uh, the issue of 15-minute cities. Uh, and a question was uh, recently uh, asked about that in the House of Commons as well. A lot fewer people in the chamber for this particular question, but let's have a listen to Neil Fletcher, MP. Nick Fletcher. Madam Deputy Speaker, will the leader please set aside some time in this House for a debate on the international socialist concept of so-called 15-minute cities and 20-minute neighbourhoods? Ultra-low emission zones in their present form do untold economic damage to any city. However, the second step after these zones will take away personal freedoms as well. Yep. Sheffield is already on this journey and I do not want Doncaster, which is also a Labour-run socialist council, to do the same. Low emission zones cost the taxpayer money, simple as. However, 15-minute cities will cost us our personal freedom and that cannot be right. Well, I thank the, the Honourable Gentleman. Uh, whatever the, the motivations for uh, this, uh, this new uh, policy, which some councils are uh, adopting, I think that uh, uh, the hardworking people of this country, their lives are complicated enough, uh, especially at the moment when we're trying to uh, boost uh, the local economy. We're trying to get uh, tradesmen and sole traders being able to uh, uh, boost their income. Uh, I think it's right that people raise uh, concerns about uh, this particular kind of policy. And of course, we would want to see that where such uh, policies were being forwarded, that uh, local communities were being properly consulted. 
Right, so that was Nick Fletcher, not Neil Fletcher, apologies, MP, and that was Penny Mordaunt at the end. Now, Penny Mordaunt, of course, ran for Prime Minister. Uh, she seemed to give a slightly more reasonable answer to the question than Rishi Sunak was prepared to give to the previous question. So maybe the Tory party made the wrong choice there. But nonetheless, <laughs> uh, Nick Fletcher then tweeted a, a little bit more out about this. Uh, so here we go. Ultra low emission zones in their present format do untold economic damage to any city. However, the second step after ULES is this so-called 15-minute cities or 20-minute neighbourhoods. Uh, these will take away your personal freedoms as well. Bristol, Oxford, Canterbury are signed up for them, uh, as is now Sheffield Council. Uh, see their minutes of 2nd February 2022. And he gives a link to that. Uh, is there uh, in, in there it's minuted that Sheffield Council resolved uh, quotes, notes Metro Mayor Dan Jarvis's calls to transformer, transformer infrastructure for cycling and walking and put in place building blocks for compact and livable 15-minute neighbourhoods. Fletcher goes on and therefore calls on him and his successor to act on this and work with Sheffield Council to make 15-minute neighbourhoods a reality across our area. I do not want Doncaster, which is also a Labour-run socialist council, to do the same. Uh, Ultra-low emission zones cost the taxpayer money, simple as. However, 15-minute cities will cost us our personal freedom and cannot be right. Uh, then he goes on to say, I believe in net zero and in having a strong local economy and encourage us all to do our bit. But destroying our towns and cities and keeping us prisoners in our communities is not the way. So, well, I would question uh, his belief in net zero. I would suggest he needs to do a bit more research there. But nonetheless, he uh, making a very valid point. So let's imagine what could possibly have happened in the mainstream press uh, about this, Patrick. Well, let's bring Forbes on and see what they had to say. Tory MP uses conspiracy theory in UK Parliament against 15-minute city concept. Oh. Uh, in Parliament earlier today, the Conservative MP Nick Fletcher used the conspiracy theory against the concept of the 15-minute city. Uh, and let's uh, get another quote from this. Instead of dismissing his complaint about the proximity of people to shops, Penny Morden, the leader of the House of Commons, replied that it was right that people raise concerns about this particular kind of policy. Uh, and then what do they do? They try to drag the anti-Semitism uh, trope in as well. So on GB News, a relatively new British free-to-air television and radio news channel, the broadcaster and historian Neil Oliver recently complained about 15-minute cities, saying, uh, we'll be expected to walk or cycle. Do you see the scam yet? They advertise a world of electric cars, but what we'll end up buying is lives lived on foot within 15 minutes of our homes. And then the article goes on to bring in the whole issue of uh, the uh, uh, the recent furore over uh, Neil Oliver's alleged anti-Semitic anti uh, coverage uh, of juries and so on. Uh, so uh, this the, the, the response to this was absolutely pathetic. Well, the, look at the author. I mean, look at his slug under his author. It says, I've been writing about transport for 30 years. I think it's uh, Carlton Reed or something like right. that. Right. So that's the last guy you want writing about this because he's been on staff for 30 years. So isn't it amazing how they piece things together to create their own conspiracy? Like this is a conspiracy of conspiracy theorists. And uh, we should now, it's funny, Neil Oliver has become the whipping boy yeah. of the establishment for conspiracy theories. He's going he's gonna to basically um, uh, unseat David Icke as the uh, country's most prominent conspiracy theorist if the mainstream media have their way. It's a complete joke. And you know what else is interesting? If you look at this thread by Nick Fletcher on Twitter, the, you have these openly self-declared communists 
in various accounts coming in and attacking him. Mm -hmm. And so this is totally political. But what's the most important thing I heard from that statement? I don't agree with his net zero. I think uh, Nick Fletcher has to get educated on the whole climate change farrago and what a scam net zero is. But, but he brought up an important point. These are all being done. These policies are being put in by stealth by local government without public consultation. Right. Totally undemocratic. So you have these radical labor local government operatives, probably a minority of local government pushing this. It's it must be centrally uh, managed from some some place, but it's being done by stealth. What right. if you had open hearings and public consultation? What do you think the public would say about these? Indeed. And if you want to know about how it's being brought in by stealth, get on the UK Column website, search for Global Parliament of Mayors or C40 Cities uh, and a whole host of uh, other the, global the assembly, governments. What, what are they called? Oh, lo global Parliament of Mayors. And the, the locally, what are they called? There's the assembly. What was the, uh, the local assemblies? The people's assemblies, what were they called? Yeah, but that, well, that, that's, that is related. But nonetheless, have a search for those two terms uh, in particular. Uh, and, uh, and, and you'll see that we've been covering this for many, many years now, this drive towards making uh, the metro mayors and, the, whole, and the, the, the mayor's agenda around the world, make them drive forward with this uh, global net zero policy, 15-minute cities, and so on. So... That do have a search on the UK column website for that. And people like George Mambia are really backing these types of initiatives, as are the World Economic Forum. Indeed. Surprise, surprise. Indeed. Okay, look, we're absolutely out of time. Uh, please uh, join us if you're a UK column member for uh, extra in a couple of minutes, but otherwise uh, we'll be back at 1pm on Monday as usual. Uh, Brian away all next week, uh, but uh, don't worry, we've got plenty to cover in the meantime. Uh, thank you very much to Vanessa for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, we'll be, see you on Monday. Uh, have a good weekend. Bye-bye.